Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. Today we're asking, is it the bootstrapper's time to jump on the venture treadmill? And as always, I am joined by the inimitable editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm. Alex, how are you? And how is TechCrunch Plus going? We haven't talked about that live in a while. TechCrunch Plus is hiring. It's growing. We're expanding. I mean, just real talk, though, because we're going to talk about bootstrapping and kind of dealing with the realities of business. July was a tougher month for TC Plus. We had slightly higher churn than anticipated. But Jason Lemkin once said, you know, you're always going to have a quarter that's a little bit strange. And August is off to a great start. So on the whole, directionally, lovely, July can screw off for all I care. (laughs) You're doing a great job. And I actually really do think there's like something to be said about journalists putting on like a business and startup hat and then becoming more empathetic reporters. I forget which journal, which went solo, said this recently, which was like, I have a lot more empathy. I think it was Eric Newcomer, which was I have yeah, a lot probably. more empathy for startups right now because I am talking about things like churn and off quarters and stuff like that. So I'm glad we have that perspective on the show now. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the newcomer example is actually a great intro point because I don't think he raised external capital for his publication newcomer. He may have gotten some Substack money, but it isn't like he was out there raising a series A and so effectively bootstrapped and he's making a good go of it. And I think a lot of us in the media world are kind of watching and I'll just be honest, cheering on from the sidelines. I hope it goes well for him. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, bootstrapping, which is what we're talking about today has always been something that I think journalists can relate to and love to write about because it is this like fight against the big guy, aka the VC backed behemoths, someone pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, which is where that word comes. And the definition put simply is very much like someone who uses money for from the business or their own money to finance their business to that next stage instead of relying on maybe a seed or series A round, which is the majority of what we talk about at the intersection of venture capital and startups. Yeah. I wanted to start with a question for you, Natasha, which is how carefully do you define the word bootstrap? Because for example, you could say if you ever took a dollar from someone else, you didn't bootstrap. But if you raised 5k from your rich cousin and then never raised again, to me, you're bootstrapping. So I'm just curious where you draw the line on kind of what counts and what doesn't. Ooh, that's a good question. So I think like someone who raised 100K from Techstars and then never raised again, I would still put them in the bootstrap bucket. I do think it's a little bit of like check size that I would say makes a difference. And then also like what kind of investors they have on their cap table or their table in general. Are they Mm. investors from an institutional fund? Are they just super angels? Maybe that's not correct, but I feel like I am pretty loose with my bootstrapping definition. No, I think it's good. And actually just going back to something you said a minute ago, I think you're right. It's essentially a business that is self-funding to at least the vast degree. It's mostly self-funding at a minimum. Sure. Maybe the founder's kicking in a little bit of money, but the business is paying for itself and its own growth, which is in contrast to the venture world where you raise money, you hire folks, and you really spend ahead of your revenue as a way to capture market share and so forth. The bootstrap companies can't do that because they don't have money. Right, exactly. And it is a little bit of a range. And I was talking to our producer, Maggie, about this before the show about who has the privilege to bootstrap in a way. Yes. And there's the people that definitely will build this really sustainable business from day one and make revenue and then put that back into the business. And then there are the people who come from wealth. And I actually asked a bootstrap founder in his view, like how often does he see, you know, there's the super rich people starting bootstrap companies because they can afford to upfront that. And he was like, I see privilege on both sides. Like the venture backed definitely raise venture, even though they could probably afford to self-fund and same with bootstrap people. And I thought that was a really important nuance because in my head, I kind of characterized in the beginning of this episode. I do imagine the bootstrap does kind of these grassroots efforts to put everything you want into the business when in reality, it could be someone who can just afford to not take a paycheck for a few years and build the business and put all their money back into it. Yeah. 
Let's be totally clear. In modern society, which is capitalist, having money is good. And having less money is harder. And that applies to this. But I do think the delineation between bootstrapping and the venture world is pretty clean in my view. So sure, we can quibble about the nuances of bootstrapping, exactly what counts, but it's definitely not what we tend to talk about, which is pre-seed, seed, series A, and then on down the chain towards an IPO, which is, you know, the venture pathway, if you will. Definitely. The reason we're talking about this today is we've been seeing so much news about venture investors starting to be more disciplined and care a lot more about business fundamentals. Basically, you need product market fit if you want to raise a series A, for example, unlike before where you could have raised a series C while still in beta, not naming names. <laughs> but um, Because of that reality, for a while, I've had this like story on my to-do list, which is, doesn't this help all bootstrapped companies? This is the story of bootstrapped companies in a way because they haven't relied on external capital and they've had to get there in order to still exist. And it turns out that is becoming somewhat of a trend where investors are. I talked to Charles Hudson from Precursor about this. He was like, I have invested more in bootstrapped companies this year than years prior. Slightly more, not extremely. But it's seeming to like it would fit the profile where these two sides would meet in the middle. Okay, so let, let me unpack that a little bit to make sure that I'm tracking what you're saying, that I'm picking up what you're putting down, I think is the yes. uh, the phrase. So essentially, bootstrap companies were out of vogue, I think for a while, because venture capital was going up in terms of capital dispersed per year, valuations were hot, exits were hot. And so the venture model was what we heard the most about. But if things get more conservative, to your point, companies that have a history of self-funding might be more attractive to venture capitalists because these are proven models that have PMF because they're selling their product in the market and have been self-funding and, you know, investors now claim to love profitability. So is that the thing that's making them kind of come up? I think so. I think it's definitely like this ability to show that they are a real company and they have focus and discipline as part of their like origin story. That said, venture still is a model that needs outliers in order to get returns. And so I do think it's like this really niche type of bootstrap company that's going to want to get on what one founder described as the venture treadmill, which mm. is a topic I want to talk about because I was talking to Healthy, which really inspired the story. Its co-founder, Kavan Klinsky, said that if you're a bootstrap company who is not yet on the venture treadmill, you can kind of have that option on when to get on, which is what they did recently. They raised 16.5 million from Precursor, Velvet Sea, Gray Matter, and others. And for them, they said that it was really important for them to build a business that they knew wasn't reliant on venture capital before taking on venture ah. capital, which to me was kind of this difference between the bootstrap company that can just say they're bootstrapped and take on like a pre-seed after two years versus one that took their time and then took on that capital check. Yeah. If you bootstrapped and raised a pre-seed, you didn't really bootstrap. You didn't build something. It's small still, which is fine. But like, I mean, bootstrapping, I think you have to like get somewhere to earn the title. It's not a moniker you can probably self-ascribe. You probably have to kind of earn it out there in the market. But Natasha, let's unpack venture treadmill a little bit. I know what they meant, but I'm curious if you could explain to folks out there who might think raise one round and then stop, you know? Yeah. I mean, Listen, we've talked about it on equity so many times, which is venture capital brings a boatload of incentives with it. The biggest one, in my view, is that investors need like this insane return on the company, like a 10x return. So if you are a startup that takes on venture capital, you are promising to these investors that you will give them that return in some capacity. Depending on what sector you're in, that can influence how aggressively you have to market, how you have to focus on customer acquisition growth and customer acquisition costs as a result. I would say the biggest difference is if you're venture-backed, you need to have exponential growth. And if you're not venture-backed, you can have linear growth and take your time in pursuing things. And there's less pressure, I would say, is kind of that that word. Yeah, I would also throw in there, like one, I totally agree with that. But I think another nuance that we could consider when thinking about the venture treadmill is just the way you set up your business. Like if you raise a $20 million Series A, what do you do? You hire 
you take up your burn rate, you spend more money. And then suddenly your business is not self-funding because you've increased spend ahead of revenues, which is what startups do to, again, gain market share, take over markets, beat competitors back and go quickly. It's probably hard to go from a series A to nothing on purpose. It's something you can do if you have to by cutting staff and doing other kind of relatively brutal things. But I think once you raise some venture capital money, you're kind of like opting in to this track towards an IPO effectively. 100%. And that's what really struck me about Healthy basically being like, we needed to prove that our business wasn't reliant on VC before doing it. Because I don't think we hear that too often. I think we often hear if you are VC backed, we hear the startup saying like, these are founding investors with us. And this is so much proof of why we are going to be this outlier income because it's considered like a massive and snazzy step of approval. I mean, look, all we talk about in our deals of the week are venture backed startups. And I think that's for a reason because they are trying to swing the biggest So I think it's really important to view it as a treadmill, though, because if we don't, then it's kind of viewed as like casual capital and it's not casual at all. It's not casual (laughs) capital. I mean, like venture capital relationships with the founders last often longer than marriages, especially in the unicorn era. So like this is a partner that you're bringing in and they're going to own a big chunk of your company. Definitely. What do you think about the idea of these two sides, which is like the bootstrapped and venture capitalists, which are looking for exponential growth starting to meet in the middle? Like, do you feel like it's maybe a blip or do you actually feel like we're going to see more of it? I think the question you put in front of us, which is, is it the time for bootstrapped companies to get on the venture cycle, if you will, is very good because it shows that the changing market conditions could imply that a certain cohort of companies that was previously ignored or less enticing suddenly could become the hottest thing in town. So when we started talking about this, I went back through some old coverage to try to figure out when have we seen this before? And we've Mm -hmm. tended to see it with companies that have reached real scale. So think about like Squarespace, which was founded, I think back in like 2003. And then it was six, seven, eight years until they raised money. And then later on, they raised a couple of nine figure checks, but they bootstrap for a long time. And there's other names like Qualtrics, which I first interviewed back in like 2015 on stage for Disrupt. They bootstrap for a long time. Then later on, they raised a bunch of money. So when I look at the history of this idea, it tends to be, look, we built a company that has $300 million of ARR. Now we're going to raise some venture capital money and provide some secondary and et cetera. I'm curious though, if bootstrap companies at an earlier stage are now going to be the thing that's enticing to investors who are a little bit before the growth stage. I think that's exactly what's new here. It's not going to be the Excel kind of signing that 120 million series A company for the enterprise business. <laughs> it might yeah. be the younger ones. And I think there's going to be some mistakes made to your point. If it does change and if it does come earlier, the way like everything feels like it's going earlier, I think some bootstrap companies are going to have their doors knocked on by venture investors who are interested. And maybe before they didn't have the option. Now, if they do, like when people have options, mistakes are made and also big success is created, right? Like it's not only bad news. I just, I'm a little weary that it is kind of like a temptation. And if you are getting capital offered to you at a time where you feel like your business is doing really healthy and your competitors, your VC backed competitors are having double rounds of layoffs. I think we might see like an interesting conversation being started. Yeah. And I think when it comes to seeing, you know, rivals that raise a lot of money going through multiple rounds of layoffs, you're going to end up with that German word I can't pronounce about enjoying other people's suffering because you were eating off your own plate and they were at someone else's buffet. And it turns out they got indigestion to complete a very (laughs) strange analogy. But at the same time, if you're a bootstrap founder and you do build a company to even modest scale, you're going to have, you know, the equity in your pocket. You have such a commanding stake in the business because you didn't raise a lot of money early on when capital is the most expensive because it's the most risky. I can see suddenly how with venture capitalists scrounging for a deal that 
is at a price they like, you might be like, okay, I'll sell a small chunk of the company to, I mean, Excel is the kind of er example here, but like another investor, if you will, because the dilution isn't that bad and the capital is available. And why not be more aggressive when your venture rivals, venture backed rivals are slowing down and trying to pull back? It's a complete change on like how we think about how these companies had to exist last year versus this year. Mm. A lot of investors recently have been talking to me about how the downturn of founders either seeking funding or the decline of startups being able to raise that next fund is net positive for the companies that are making moves long term. I guess put differently, they're saying that the fact that the amount of well-funded competitors may be going down is great news for a bootstrap company or for a newer stage startup because now it's no longer going to be as expensive for them to win. So yes, you can get on the venture treadmill, so to speak, but you don't need to keep adding more money to yourself. You can take on that first check and still win doing that is one of the arguments I've heard. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think one thing we have seen in the last couple of years, kind of through, as we talk about the end of 2021, when things began to turn, was there being perhaps more startups pursuing the same idea or theme than were going to be viable long term. But that didn't mean that they weren't able to raise money and put it to work, which meant that the market was busy. And I think that this pushed up customer acquisition costs or CAC for a great number of companies. I mean, I started to track startup clusters. There was like the InsureTech Marketplace yeah. cluster. There was the OKR startup cluster. And I think we really saw just essentially venture capital floating more boats than the pond could really fit. And that probably leads to less positive results for the eventual winner. And so if you're an investor, you probably like a more conservative market for your own portfolio to a degree. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive. I was talking to Redpoint's Annie Kadavi. They raised a fund recently, $650 million for their ninth fund. And she was saying how like the founder downturn in a way is kind of good news because it is exactly the dynamic that you're describing where the ones that get their money will be able to like go farther with that money. Mm. Bringing that back to like bootstrapped folks, one of the founders I spoke to, Payman Tai, the founder of Vizme, basically said that we're never going to see a bootstrapping story as successful as MailChimp which sold last year to Intuit for $12 billion because of how much it costs to grow a company, which I thought was a really interesting point and kind of a big one, which is like for the bootstrap companies that are taking on venture, they're not going to have the MailChimp type exit where the founders owned all of the business. Yeah. So it kind of gives you that counter story of like, it may be a great time to be a bootstrap company and get all these venture offers, but you know, the outcomes do change the moment you take that money. Yeah. You know, when we think about how much money there is in venture capital, back to the point about MailChimp and how different it is, I think it's worth pulling up some numbers. So I just grabbed the CB Insights Q2 2022 State of Venture Report. I'm just going to say this. Shout out to the CB Insights data team for putting together like 400 page reports. Thank you. Like consistently, if you're listening to this, the TechCrunch family appreciates you because I read this report like a (laughs) hundred times per quarter. Anyways, through Q2 of this year, we have seen in the world $250.1 billion in invested venture capital, which is essentially equivalent to all the capital we saw in 2019. It's only a couple dozen billion below all of 2020, which was essentially tied to 2018. So halfway through this year, a down year, a year in which things are supposed to be terrible, we're essentially matching prior year full totals in the first half of this year. That's how much money there is. And so Natasha, on the MailChimp wow. point, if I understand it, yeah. It would have cost MailChimp more money today to grow because of essentially venture dollars being poured through startups into digital ad channels or whatever that would have grown their CAC and therefore made it impossible to reach the scale they did, at least at the speed they did, without taking on external funds of their own. Yeah, 100%. I think that that is kind of an insane 
also moment to be covering this topic because a part of me is like, it feels like MailChimp was yesterday and it feels like a lot of these stories of extreme bootstrapping company exits were yet to come. And so now I'm wondering if we're not going to see them as much either. Well, we're not seeing exits at all right now. Yeah, that's So true. I mean, like, I, show, show me an S1. I'll buy that person a car. <laughs> I know, I'm like thinking about you. I'm like, what is, I mean, you're obviously very busy, but I'm also like, what is he doing without S1s? <laughs> oh, do you know how much I've had to like think up new thoughts to fill my daily column? Like when it's IPO season, you can just be like, oh, there's a new S1A that dropped. Okay, they're going to price at 18. Cool, let's talk about that. That's that story, yeah. Dude, every morning, Natasha, I sit down at my desk with my coffee and I'm like, now what? <laughs> now what? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta come so up with weird. something. All right. So if you're a bootstrap company in the late stage and can exit, tell Alex soon. He needs something to write about. Yeah, come on. <laughs> but we don't hear about these companies as much as you might otherwise think. And I think there's an important reason why, which is they don't create media-friendly news milestones. And so if you're curious, like listening to us today, you're like, well, if bootstrapping is getting more popular, why am I not hearing about it? It's because companies like you know Zapier aren't raising money. So they're not out here telling us about why Greylock is their new bestie or whatever. You know, yeah, it's like the marketing money too, right? Like, as a journalist, like, I want most of my stories to come from my own outbound and searching and, and stumbling upon people. But I'll be honest, like, a lot of times the companies that I write about can be through pitches or at least can start as a pitch sort of conversation. And so I'm like, damn, like the fact that they're not even reaching out to our inboxes because they don't have the bandwidth and they're busy is interesting to me. And I guess like that's kind of the point where I want to end in a way, which is like the idea of like how bootstrapping philosophy can scale in a venture-like setting. And to me, that's a really fun tension, which is how will bootstrap companies unlearn what they already were working mm. on? And I guess in some ways, like be okay with being poached by venture. I learned recently that most bootstrap companies, when they raise, it's not their choice. It's it's because venture investors are knocking on their doors consistently. It's rare that someone will outbound. But they have to say yes. Right, they have to say yes. It's not their idea, but it is their choice. Yes, exactly. And so yes. I guess I'm, in my head, I'm like, okay, it's like the thing I want to cover for my follow-up story a little bit is like, how do you change your philosophy as a startup founder in real time and kind of decide to take it on? To me, it just feels like a big deal. And I know I'm a more conservative person when it comes to financing, but it just feels like, how do you change your mind so fast? I don't think you do. I think you start to work on it and then you figure it out. But I mean, like if you have been eating off your own seed corn for, you know, the first 10 years of your business and suddenly you raise $50 million, I really doubt you're going to go out and go crazy with it because you're probably so accustomed to mapping out near-term ROI, managing cash flows and so forth that like you're probably not going to write some silly checks. At the same time, you do have to go from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. You do have to realize that you're being asked to run faster. And towards this particular target in a certain time frame, that's the venture treadmill in a nutshell. So I bet it takes time. And I bet there's a lot of conversations with investors about how to get away from being afraid of spending. And I bet actually this is a place where investors help because I bet they're like, nah, yeah, you know, you can afford <laughs> to have the offsite at the uh, Ritz-Carlton, you know, Kauai, go for it. Right. <laughs> that's so true. I mean, as you're saying that, it's so weird how full circle we've come because as bootstrap founders learn how to spend more money. Venture-backed founders are learning how to spend less money. And what a moment it is for them to be changing their mindset. Because I hear all of them say how like, basically, uh, so I'll give you an example. Career yeah. Karma, they had a recent round of layoffs. It was about a quarter of staff. And in the memo that Ruben Harris, their co-founder, sent to their investors, basically they were saying that we are going to be able to be self-funded for the next three years. And so in some ways, we're seeing venture-backed startups take on the bootstrapping mentality. They had to have layoffs in order to say that. And I've seen so many founders cite the same thing, which is kind of like in Rose's case too, we need to be able to not have to raise for the next few years. Again, maybe a loose definition of bootstrapping, but I, yeah, that's, doesn't that kind of feel similar? That's 
that's somewhere on the edge. And I, I would push it back into the venture. Like, like saying that you're going to self fund for three years is telling me you have three years of cash until your zero hour, which means that's that you're point. not self funding. You're just dying less quickly. Congratulations. Right. There's such a difference between self-funding using VC money and self-funding using money you're making if you're making money. It's because self-funding with VC money is bullshit and it's just marketing spin. <laughs> it's like the treadmill. It just, just keep on keeps on going. I, I feel like this metaphor, like I wish we like had an in-house artist to draw like what it looks like to be on this treadmill because it does not seem easy at all. Yes. Uh, well, we do have Bryce Durbin, who is an absolute treat to work with, but he is. Oh, yeah. He's always he's busy and I don't yeah, want to bother him with equity art. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how I feel. I do. I do a little bit miss the Crunchbase news days, Natasha. When I mean, we could literally walk across the room to Leanne and be like, "So I have an idea. It's a dragon, but it's also a unicorn, and it's a car." <laughs> and then watch yeah, her exactly. eyes get big. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's so fun! I feel like we have some of those drawings still too of random graphics that are now iconic. Yeah, I love seeing them out in the wild. You know, I was thinking about the interplay between a more conservative market and money, and how that changes things. And I was thinking about how you know, yeah, in a more conservative market, the pendulum from founder friendliness kind of swings more towards investor power. And then I was trying to square that with bootstrap companies possibly taking on more venture capital, which seems like instead it's like investors having more power, but over these other companies. And how does that kind of work in? And then I realized it's not really, it's more of like a shared agreement because the bootstrap company doesn't need the money. The VC just wants to put it somewhere where they're going to be relatively safe. And so it feels like a much more like adult to adult trade-off in which people who have the money have the power and those who don't, don't. I like that a lot. And it really fits into what we've talked about because it is like very much like bootstrap companies because of the way that they started and have grown, they don't need to swing bigger, right? Like no one needs, in a capitalist society, everyone wants to make more money. And that's the funny part. And it's the hard part to get around a little bit because I'm a little like, if you can make more money, why would you not? I think it's a lot about like how you believe a business should be built. And that's what it comes down to as the founder. Yes. So I would love to be a fly on the wall in those conversations, which is like, I'm not going to be the pre-seed company at a 100 million valuation, but I will be a company that after a decade of being built, I'll take on some of your money. And here's what I'll do with it. You can invest me if you want to, but you, you're the one who emailed me. So I'm not going to change the way I grow. This yeah. is me impersonating a bootstrap founder. <laughs> Do you know what we call a pre-seed startup that's worth $100 million? <laughs> a future we- smoking crater. Oh, God. It is. It is. It's all we've learned this time. <laughs> and Natasha's point about unlearning things and kind of if you go from being bootstrapped to raising venture capital, going the other way is incredibly hard. I mean, we saw this week Uber finally reached Ooh. free cash flow positivity. And I've been waiting for this for... <laughs> I had hair. When I started having this conversation with, with myself about Uber's finances. So it can take that long to wean yourself off of a model that was predicated on external capital and high rates of burn in the name of growth. So it's oh, a drug, man. but drugs are fun. And so is venture capital. When I saw that, that story of that Uber story this morning, I was like, is this real life? And I, I actually couldn't click into it because my internet's been giving me issues. Um, but I, I was very excited about it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy for Alex. And you don't even work <laughs> or have any financial incentive in Uber. Of course you don't. But I just, I don't know. For some reason, I really tie you to that company because you've covered them for so long. So to see them with I mean, I, I, I bet one of my index funds has some shares of Uber somewhere. <laughs> so I probably have some, you know, like de minimis exposure. But no, I was just happy to see that company managed to grow out of not only its early culture, but also it's early business culture. And uh, it's kind of a seminal moment, I think. But it does go to show that if you do get accustomed to overeating, it's hard to um, slim down. 100%. I mean, the venture treadmill, very much an interesting concept. We'll keep talking about it. Alex, you are the best. Thank you for joining me and talking about this. Thank you. I agree. Um, Everyone else, we will be back on Friday. We'll see you then. And we'll talk to you soon. 
Bye.